go ahead and take your Bibles this morning with me and turn to John chapter 17. This feels a little strange being up here. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. To you. It's a little bit different. Maybe I'll come down there. Yeah, you might well. I'll stay up here. Maybe you won't. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We got some time, right? There's another Sunday next week. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. We're actually going to take a step away from 1 Corinthians for a couple weeks to really think about how the Lord continues to make two churches one. How the Lord continues to direct us and and inspire oneness as a a church family. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry's got a handful back there. There are a few Bibles in front of you that's a little bit different translation than I'm going to be reading from this morning. So you can use that for sure, but just be aware that things might look a little bit different from exactly the way that I'm going to read them this morning from John chapter 17. So if you do need a copy of God's Word, but would not prefer prefer to see the exact words that I'm saying this morning, put your hand in the air and Larry can bring you one. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's for you. You can have that. You can take that home with you if you need a new copy. That can be yours as well. Take it. That's our gift to you. So we're going to take a step away again, like I said, from 1 Corinthians this week, and and really think about how the Lord continues to make us one church. And what better place to go than John chapter 17, commonly referred to, commonly called the High Priestly Prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prays the Thursday before he's crucified that Friday. So less than 24 hours before Jesus will be crucified, he prays this prayer. And Jesus prays for all of those who the Father has given to him. So if you're in Christ this morning, this is you. Jesus is praying for you in this this text. We see he's praying for, for you. If you've repented of your sin, if you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, Jesus prayed this prayer for you. Let's read it together. I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. Uh, a lot of text, 26 verses total, but we're going to read the whole thing this morning and, and really dive into a handful of ideas that make up our identity as those who are in Christ and unify us as the people of God and as the local church. Let me read this for us, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, who you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So this prayer has a very collective feel, because Jesus is praying for a group of people for a group of men who he is with, but now is going to go away from his disciples. And especially when we get to verses 20 through 23, the collective feel begins to ramp up in intensity. And we see the thrust of Jesus' prayer, that his followers, that his sheep, that those that the Father has given him would be unified. This is a familiar topic for us, Buffalo City Church. Recently, this is a this is a this is a, a regular topic that we've talked about, especially if you've been in First Corinthians. We walked through that letter. The Corinthians were fractured by factions. We've seen this time and time again. The Corinthians were fractured by factions, but they should have been unified by the gospel. And that's Paul's argument throughout the letter. The Corinthians were all too often forgetting who they were in light of the gospel. In light of what God had done for them in Christ Jesus, the Corinthians continued to forget that time and time again. And Paul says to them, you must be united under the banner, under the heading of the truth of the gospel. And he provides warning for us as well. But Jesus here in John chapter 17 prays specifically, very specifically even, and so that we continue to walk through two churches becoming one, a merger process, what a highlight what Jesus' 
desires for his people, for those that the Father had given to him. I'm going to walk through this morning five things, just five observations in this text. Five observations in this text that make up who we are as individuals, as God's people, but also not just as individuals, but collectively as the church. These things are true for everyone who is in Christ. And if you are in Christ, the Spirit of Christ dwells inside of you, and you are part of the body of Christ, the universal church. And then we are called to identify with a local manifestation of the universal church in the local church. And so here this morning, we call ourselves Buffalo City Church, but these five things are true for everyone who is in Christ and who makes up the church. So I'm going to give you five. First, we've already said it, we are given to the Son by the Father. We are given to the Son by the Father. Second, we are not of this world. This world is not our home. Third, we are the recipients of God's Word. If you're in Christ, you're a recipient of God's Word. You receive God's Word. It sits before us this morning. We're looking at it on our phones or at paper. We're the recipients of God's Word. Fourthly, we are kept secure, or we are kept or secured, or protected, maybe, in the name of the Father. And then finally this morning, we are participants in glory. We are participants in glory. So we see these five things in, in what Jesus prays for his followers. Now we're going to step away this week, talk about the identity portion, and then next week we're going to stay here in John chapter 17 and talk about the purpose, talk about the mission that God gives us as those who are in Christ and find our identity primarily there. So again, these five things have very practical outworkings for us. And before we get into these five things, I want to be very clear what we're talking about. Because Jesus is praying things for us as those who follow him, who have heard the word, who have believed. But these five exercises don't just become, or five thoughts don't just become a mental exercise for us. We're giving or we're seeing these things in this text. Because you are these things if you are in Christ. And this is being, or this is identity. These statements start with, you are, you are. These are things that you are if you are in Christ. And the world is clamoring. Friends, make no mistake, the world is clamoring for you to discover your identity. For you to discover your purpose. What is your purpose is a question that's commonly asked of us in this world. What is your purpose? What is it that you do? Who are you? And we feel a great burden and a great weight to answer that question regularly. And oftentimes we think about our vocation. We think about the way that the way that our life is shaped up or an event in our past that has defined us. But Jesus has something very specific here again. A common identity for his followers. Tim Keller defines identity as simply where you find your greatest meaning, significance, and security. So the question stands before us this morning, where is our identity? Where do we find our identity? Where do we find our greatest meaning, our greatest significance, and our greatest security? Some of you in this morning, this morning are in a place where you're figuring that out. 
where you're figuring that out for your for the first time. You're young, you've got ideas about what direction you're headed, and you're figuring out who you are. Some of you have been secure in this for decades. Regardless if you're at the front end of answering that question or the tail end, we all, as those who are in Christ, must find our identity there first. And so, are you in Christ? That comes before everything else. Work, family, the decisions you make on a weekly basis, your heritage, the successes or failures you've experienced, your bank account, your retirement account, you go on and on. Your identity in Christ comes before each and every one of those things. This is not the first time we've explored this idea together. But these five things that we're going to look at this morning become crystal clear when you find your identity in Jesus. Jobs come and go. Family is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Your decisions are based on flawed data and imperfect information. Your house or apartment is subject to the elements. You are subject to dust and do laundry. It never goes away. Your success is temporary. Your failure is debilitating. Markets fluctuate. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <laughs> there is nothing more foolish than identifying with something that can change but something unchangeable is available. Let me say that again. There is nothing more foolish than identifying with something that can change when there's something unchangeable that's available. Our four-year-old this week, um, we watched Star Wars for the first time. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> We're super excited. With our six-year-old and our four-year-old, we watched episode one. We thought it would be fun. So we sat down and we began to watch it. But before we got to that, before we got to Star Wars, we told them that they needed to tidy up the playroom. They tidy up the playroom. They said, hey guys, we're going to watch Star Wars. We just need the playroom to be tidy because it's going to go late and we're going to go straight to bed. Okay? So we want the playroom tidy. Our four-year-old began to cry. Because he's always an example. I'm so sorry. But he, he began to cry. And he just said, I don't want to watch Star Wars. And we said, really? You don't want to watch Star Wars? And, no, I just want to watch some videos on Dad's phone. <laughs> and we're like, you have the offer of watching Star Wars. And you're watching. You want to watch just videos on Dad's phone. I don't even know what he wanted to watch. Like dinosaur videos. Like, Come on, Star Wars. And maybe you're not a Star Wars fan. But if you are, you understand what I'm saying. You understand, like, why would you just want to watch a YouTube video on my phone when you could watch Star Wars? Uh, duh. Same thing here. There's nothing more foolish than identifying with something that can change and something unchangeable is available. So you say, well, I find my identity in Jesus. My greatest meaning, significance, and security is in Jesus. And if that's you, great. These five things that are going to serve as a litmus test. They're going to serve as a test to understand and to test the metal of that, that state. So let's look at these five things. Five things. First thing that we see here, verses 1 and 2, very simple. Verses 1 and 2, we are given to the Son by the Father. Verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
since you have given him all authority, all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So we, if we are in Christ, have been given by the Father to the Son. Jesus knew the time had come, less than 24 hours before he was going to be crucified. Less than 24 hours from the point of his prayer, he would freely give himself up for those the Father had given him. That's us. If you're in Christ, that's you. Jesus, in this moment, is praying for you. He's going to give himself up. Less than 24 hours. He gave himself up for you. And look at the aim here. What is the aim? This is important to know. Why is it that the Father has given us to the Son? Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That last phrase in verse 1. The glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ is why we, friends, have been given to God the Father. We were created for that very purpose. We're going to ask ourselves, what is my purpose here on earth? The fundamental, most basic understanding, the fundamental, most basic understanding of why you are here on the face of the earth is to bring God glory. That's why God created you. He intends you to bring Him glory. By being satisfied in Him. By loving Him. By making Him known. We'll get there in a second. The glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ, is the aim here in verses 1 and 2. We are given to Jesus by the Father for the glory of God. And we were created for that purpose. Don't forget that. You ask yourself, what is my purpose? That's an identity-based question. What is my purpose is an identity-based question. How do we, as God's people, bring glory to God? By finding all that we are in Him. By living according to that which He has commanded us. By knowing Him and making Him known. That's mission. We'll talk about that next week. By loving Him and by loving others. By following Jesus and taking up our cross, saying, there is nothing greater than knowing and loving God. By dying to self and self-interest. By being totally satisfied in Him, by finding joy in His Word, and not by seeking contentment or comfort or in anything other than God and all that He is for us in Jesus. By resting in the truth that Jesus bled and died to bring the Father glory. Now notice the aim here is the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. And the, so the focus of this whole text, despite the fact that Jesus is praying for us in this moment, the ultimate focus of this text is not us. It's the glory of God. That God would be exalted. And so God would be glorified. In a culture, our culture, that preaches individualism so quickly and so readily, says you were special and so God saved you. That's not what the Bible says. It says, in fact, quite the opposite. It says, you were dead in transgressions and sins. It says that you were alienated and hostile in mind, that your heart of stone needed to be replaced with a heart of flesh. You were altogether evil and separated from God because of your sin, and you were just fine, simply wallowing in that sin. God saved you for one purpose. He saved you for his glory. And he saved you to glorify him. He 
It's not some unlock, some hidden potential in me, but to restore to you what was originally intended for you by him. To glorify God by bearing his image. For this purpose, God gave us to Jesus so that he might restore our image-bearing capability. And so we say, glory to God alone. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He gave us to Jesus and established us in him. So we are a gift from the Father to the Son, and one of the Father and Son may be glorified. So, friends, we have this in common. If you're in Christ, you have this in common. That leads us to our second point. Look at verse 6 with me. We are not of this world. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. People whom you have given to me out of this world, so he's taken us and moved us out of this world, not, not physically yet, but in their identities. And then look at verse 9, down the page. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's not praying for the world, but he's praying for those that the Father has given to him that have been set apart, that have been removed, that don't find their home here on this earth. He's praying for those who belong to the Father. They do not belong to this world. And now this is vital. Our, our, our world, our culture, everything around us demands that we demands that we are of it, that we belong to it. The world grips us and goes hard after us. It is endlessly telling us how we can be fulfilled moment to moment. Endlessly. If you wore these clothes, or if you lived in this neighborhood, if you had this degree, if you had this for dinner, if you subscribed to this parenting plan, if you took this vacation, if you spent your retirement here or there, the world wants us to find our meaning in it, our significance in it, and our security in it. That's what the world is clamoring for. But as those who have been given to Jesus by the Father out of this world, we can find no meaning, no significance, and no security in it. Because food and drink and sex and money that the world offers are no viable substitutes for that which is promised to us in Christ. All that which the world offers comes with trouble. Jesus said it one chapter earlier in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Seeking security, seeking meaning, seeking significance in the world will come with trouble. But Jesus says, I take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. So, you and I, in Christ, we're on an 80-ish year vacation. When you go on vacation, you pack a suitcase. Mm -hmm. You don't take everything that you own. 
And when you go on vacation, you don't invest in things that you can't take home with you. You ever been in a place and you're like, man, I really wish I could buy that, but I know I have to get back on a plane. And it would cost more than the thing to get home anyway. That's the reality. We're on an 80-ish year of vacation. We're not of this world. We must not invest in things we can't take home. So we're not of this world. Friends, we have this to come. We are given to the Son by the Father, and we are not of this world. That brings us to our third thing this morning. We're the recipients of God's Word. Verse 8, look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave to me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus gave the words that the Father gave to him, and then bump down to verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. God gave us, or Jesus gave us God's word. Verse 17 then, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified, we are made holy, we are consecrated, we are set apart by the word of God, by the truth that Jesus brought, and that Jesus is. And so this relates to our mission, and which we'll discuss next week. In verse 20 is the testimony of what God has done in Jesus that we take to the world. We are not guessing at who God is or what God requires. We don't have to guess. We're not left to wonder what to do next. We are not left to despair when hardship comes our way. We're not left without understanding of how we fit into the unfolding story of God's redemptive plan. And this bleeds from the last point that we saw that we're not of this world. Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify them in truth. He says, your word is truth. And as recipients of God's word, we have been set apart. Now, where we live, in the 21st century here in North Dakota, <coughs> anyone can purchase a Bible. You can buy a Bible. But it is God's people, those who have the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside them, who have truly received the Word of God. And this is about God. This is for us. In order that we might know God and bring glory. So we receive God's word, and therefore we must dedicate our attention to it. This is a great gift. We must dedicate our attention to it. Will our Bibles collect us? Will we talk about how busy we are for it? Will we make assumptions about what's contained inside? Will we talk about how hard it is to understand? Or will we seek God in it? We will memorize and meditate upon it. Will we hide it in our hearts? Will we center ourselves on it? <laughs> Will we be a community of faith that would find our meaning and our identity in the understanding that we have received the Word of God? And that it is an incredible gift given to us. The ability to know God. Uh, get your head around it. Start thinking about it this week. The ability to know God sits before you this morning. 
your creator, the one who sustains you every moment, the breath in your lungs, the next beat of your heart, comes from the God of the universe, the one who made you. And you have the ability to know him. What a privilege. Not a burden. It's an avenue to know the creator of all things. He is knowable. So, read it together. Study it constantly. Don't grow tired of it. The reason we don't spend enough time in God's word is because we quickly forget what it is. We quickly forget that it is God's word about who he is to us, his people. And that he intends for us to know him through it. And he's given it to us we have been giving God's word, we are the recipients of it. Friends, we share this in common. Fourth thing, we are kept or secured, protected in the name of the Father. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus keeps us. Jesus protects us. Jesus is our shepherd. He is the good shepherd. We are secure. That second half of that verse, we say, except the son of destruction, Jesus is talking about Jesus Iscariot, who in the very next chapter is going to betray Jesus. But for us, for everyone else, that's the only exception given to you. For everyone else who is in Christ, security is for you. You are kept in the name of the Father. There is no more certain place than the name of the Father. There is no more certain place than the name of God. God protects that at all costs. His name, He makes it famous. He cares deeply that His name is attached with his glory. The security that Jesus prays here, that Jesus prays about here, it goes beyond our physical circumstances. This is a security that leads Jesus to pray. In John chapter 10, he says, My Father who given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So our eternity is secure. Nothing can alter it. And in our day-to-day -day situations, they may seem rocky. Now, maybe you're in a place this morning where you feel like, what's going on? I have no idea what's happening. How can I go on with things the way that they are? Jesus has overcome the world. Remember that? John 16, 33. Jesus has overcome the world. And because of his work on your behalf, there is no need to worry or be anxious. Your eternity is secure. It is safe. It is protected, it is kept in the name of the Father. You cannot be snatched out of your Heavenly Father's hand. And as believers, we need to be careful about how we think about our circumstances. We are so often rocked and riddled by our circumstances. We have been promised security in Christ Jesus. What you have in Christ can't be taken away. When you worry about your present reality, friends, or just say it straight, when you worry about your present reality, you make little of the gospel. You shrink it. You shrink the truth of the gospel in your mind and your heart. 
And we as Christians should find certainty at every turn. We should be people overflowing with confidence. There is nothing that can alter my eternal trajectory. What you have in Christ can't be taken away. We've been given the ability to honor God, to bring our Heavenly Father glory because of Jesus Christ. And now you may be here and thinking, there's no way I'm secure. If you knew the things that I've done, the ways I've treated others, the way I've handled myself. Friends, there is no sin so great that the cross of Christ did not take care of it, did not pay for it, that Jesus did not reconcile you by the blood the precious blood that he shed. And if you're a Christ and you've repented and you've turned and you've trusted Jesus to take care of that sin, your eternity is secure. And there is nothing that can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Believe it to be true because it is true. The Word of God is true. It is right. You are protected in the name of the Father. The blood of Jesus is ensured your eternity. Do not doubt this morning. Be built up in faith and belief. Do not doubt. Understand that it is God who has said it. Do not make little of him by faithlessly ignoring his promises. Jesus has ensured your eternity. And just like he prays for us here in John 17, he prays for us at this moment. He intercedes on our behalf. That we may find security and rest in the understanding of who he is and what he has done for us. What he's accomplished on the cross. Jesus has ensured your eternity. Friends, we have this accomplished. Finally this morning, last thing we see here. And then we'll go to a conclusion. Look at verse 22. We are participants in glory. We are participants in glory. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me... I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, not that the glory here belongs to us. It doesn't belong to us, it's not our possession. But, we have seen it. We have beheld it. We have become woven into it. The glory of the Father is the Son and His work on the cross. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate God-glorifying act. And because we have become the beneficiaries of that, because our forgiveness of sin is tied up there, because we are now made right with God because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now we, as God's people, have become part of this ultimate God-glorifying act. I like how D.A. Carson sums up verse 22. He says it like this. I have revealed you to them in my person, words, works, and supremely in the cross and resurrection. Here your glory, your goodness, are truly displayed. So Jesus is given glory by God the Father, and he displays that glory to us, and he weaves us into it. And so we have become participants in it. Now look at the aim here. In this verse, right? We saw earlier that the, the, the glory of God was the aim when God the Father gave Jesus the Son us. Now look at the aim in verse 22. He's saying, 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. The aim of the participation that we have in God's glory is our unity. It is our oneness. Because in this act, in the participation of the Father and the Son in glory, and we pass into that, we see God's oneness full on display. So we have seen God's glory in Jesus Christ become, become partakers in that glory because God is glorified through the salvation of sinners. Those who are dead in their transgressions and sins. Those who are alienated and hostile in mind. We have been woven into this plan of redemption. People redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We are affected. We are affected by God's plan to bring himself glory. Friends, we share this Come. So, in conclusion, we ask the question, so what? So, so what? So we have this identity in Jesus. We are given to the Son by the Father. We are not of this world. We have been given God's Word. We are secure in Christ. And we are participants in God's glory. The so what is this? Again, the aim of verse 22 is the so what for us this morning. This common identity means that we, as the body of Christ and the people of God, can be unified. The so what is our unity. This text isn't about church mergers, but the reality is that a lot of good understanding about who we are and becoming one can come out of this text. And I think church mergers can be a good example of this at work. And church mergers are possible for one reason. Because God is one. The Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. You know well, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. He is one. His oneness means that we can be one. He has existed for all eternity as one in perfect unity with himself. Three in one. Christian unity isn't a nice suggestion. It's not a nice suggestion. It is part of God's character and we are called to reflect it. God's identity. Our identity. We've been talking about our identity. What is God's identity? God's identity is radically God-centered, exclusively God-centered. He's concerned with his glory. He's concerned with his name. He's concerned with his fame. He's concerned with hearing, the hearing of the gospel, the, pro the proclamation of it throughout all of the earth. God is radically God-centered in his identity. And so we as image bearers, therefore, must be radically God-centered in our identity. And so Christian unity is not a, a nice suggestion for us, but the summary of what it means to reflect God's own identity. A God-centered identity looks like identifying with Jesus Christ. And so the question is this. What will we see together, us in this room this morning, what will we see together here as our primary identity? The five things that we see in John chapter 17 that Jesus prays for us, or something else. Mm. If it's something else, we will not find unity. Mm. 
But at the base of who we are in Christ, we find these five things. This morning you will be faced with a choice. Identify with Jesus or identify with the world or something else. And may we be a people that identify with Christ. Not something that the world, not a working, we come together in this morning, you may look around and you may see people who look different. Right? We may not work similar jobs. We may not have similar backgrounds. We may not be from the same state or country. We may not be in the same income bracket. We may not have the same age range. We may not have the same skin color. But our common identity is found in something far more lasting. If you look around this room right now, do you see people who are different? Or do you see people which you share something far deeper than the surface with? Do you find people around you who are the same. If we are in Christ and they are in Christ, you are given this to the Son by the Father. You are not of this world. You are the recipient of God's Word. You are secure and you are a participant in God's glory. Sure, we look different and we do different things. Fine. But those things cannot be allowed to divide us. In fact, we can celebrate those differences when we understand that under the surface, something far more lasting defines it. Our identity is shared in Jesus. In a sermon John Piper preached in 1994, he called it Christian Identity and Christian Destiny. Sometimes we get caught up in the now and think, like, yeah, like 25 years later, like this identity question is a big thing. This was 25 years ago, and I think it's always been an issue. We're not Corinthians, so it's been an issue for the church for its entire existence. John Piper says this. There is a lot of discussion in our day of self-concept or self-identity. How do we view ourselves? This is an important question. And what I hope you hear this morning is that that the specifically biblical angle on this question is that Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he appoints for us. If, in other words, as a Christian, you cannot talk about your identity without talking about the action of God on you, the relationship of God with you, and the purpose of God for you. The biblical understanding of human self-identity is radically God-centered. God's identity is radically God-centered, and our identity, therefore, must be radically God-centered. How does that look? It looks like identifying with Christ Jesus. If our first focus in life is on God and He has done for us in Christ, we make our lives about the gospel, about the reality that you are separated from God by your sin, and that Jesus died to forgive your sin and bring you back to God. If your first focus in life is that, then we, friends, as a church, will find unity. We will find unity. We'll experience unity as a church. And when we focus on other things, when we find our identity there, we will be overwhelmed by our differences. Young and old, rich and poor, Buffalo City, First Baptist, blue collar, white collar, North Dakota, North Dakota, somewhere else. That's what meets the eye. This morning, friends, you probably put too much stock in the external. You probably put too much stock in the external. Untempered. We must start putting stock in who we are in Christ. We migrate to people who look like us on Sunday morning. We feel awkward interacting with people 
who appear different than us. We're not sure if we should join a community group because the people are young or the people are old. <laughs> we must look below the surface and realize that we share an identity in Jesus. Therefore, be people brimming with confidence. Be bold. We have Jesus in common. We are given to the Son by the Father. We are not citizens of this world. We are recipients of God's word. We are secure in Christ. We are participants in God's glory. And for us, friends, the aim of all of this is our oneness. It's our unity. What makes church mergers work? Friends, I have read so much stuff on church mergers in the last couple of months. My head is spinning. But here's what I see in John 17. A recognition that we have a shared identity in Jesus. And that we're set apart for a common purpose and mission. And we'll talk about that next week. But a recognition, ultimately, that God is God is one. This can all work because we have a shared identity in Jesus. A shared identity that begins with the oneness of God. God is one. Friends, and so we can be one also. Friends, the gospel is for you. Jesus came and bled and died for the forgiveness of your sin. If you're there this morning and you're not in Christ, you don't understand what that means. Come talk to me. Find someone you're sitting next to and ask them, what is the truth of the gospel? What is the good news? It's not a self-betterment, but it's an ability to restore who you are and as the one who is made to glorify God. We, as God's people here this morning, proclaim Him and Him crucified. That's all we have. It's the only thing this morning that we can stand before one another and rest in. Again, these five things this morning are things that we identify with. We identify in Christ, and these are five things that are given to us at a base level are our common identity. Again, they find their root in God's oneness. We serve a God who is one. We serve a God who is holy, who is set apart who has existed in perfect relationship with himself for all of eternity. God is one, and so we can be one. Let's pray.